Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Wednesday, the 10th of the 2nd. Michael, how have you been? I've been very well, Gary. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go right into it. We've got a, a good list of medical negligence, humiliation, and not all of it comes from the HSE this time. The Irish vaccination program launched five weeks ago, and we're, according to the CEO of the HSE, three months behind schedule. Yeah, you have to say, it's kind of an achievement to be five weeks into a program and to already be three months behind. So for every week of work we did, we lost two and a half weeks. That doesn't seem possible. I mean, that's not how things work. That's not how maths works. When, you remember the, I don't know who did it, but it, a little while ago, a few weeks ago, they released an app where you could go in, put in your details, and it would give you a rough idea when you could expect to receive your first shot. So I did that, and it said the 11th of April. Now we're talking about, when are they talking about over 75s? I put it this way, on the basis of when they're going to finish when they're hoping to maybe finish vaccinating over 75s, it's not going to be the 11th of April for Michael. No, you're going to be a while, Michael. <laughs> so I can get hold of a, a bird cert that I can slightly fit. It's terrible when everything is counted. Back in the day, I think it was somewhere between 1901 1911, they introduced the old age pension. I think it was that Liberal government, that Lloyd George Liberal government, probably. Or one, or maybe it was. Maybe when the killing home would one of those nice Tory governments in the, that period. And this, it has created anomalies first that have puzzled some historians where people suddenly got older uh, between 1901 and 1911 because uh, they suddenly backdated their birth. Some of these people genuinely may not have known when they were born. A lot of people, it's odd for us to think of that, but a lot of, at the time, birthdays weren't a big deal and people didn't really know necessarily when they were born. It wasn't, why Why would you care? But uh, I, I wonder if, if you were sort of on the cusp, if people are out there just getting their long birth certs out and just changing that, changing that six into a five, a bit of tipex, damp it out somehow because you know it's not looking it's not looking rapid at the moment is it it's going quite slowly i mean i i saw there the other day and i, I didn't chase it up but britain has done more vaccines than the entirety of the eu added together yeah it's only 12.8 million against a little bit less but you know that's one country. One country of whatever, 70-odd something million. Not 340-odd million, though. No, no. I mean, if you think the population of the North is, is it half of ours? Less than half of ours? And so far, they have vaccinated, I think, 303,000. 303,000 have got their first jab, and another 27,000 have got both jabs. And you know what? By the time we were hitting into April and May... And I find I really, really don't like the idea of talking like that. It's going to start looking very peculiar when you're going to have people out the, the north. A friend of ours pointed out, he said that when the, when the figures in the north were bad, it was reported regularly and often about the terrible situation in the north. The, num the, the daily reporting on the numbers of people vaccinated in the north somehow is not quite as newsworthy. But it's got, people are going to start noticing 
How is it that this failed state beside us, run by this buffoon and idiot, outside of the great loving embrace of the mighty buying power of the EU, is able to get all these people vaccinated and we quite can't seem to get it done? Yeah, I saw, I heard someone on the, the radio the other day and they were talking about, you know, the great, uh, the highlights of the vaccination program and how we just achieved another milestone. And the milestone that he gave was that we are now updating vaccination figures uh, daily. And I did have to sit there for a second and just sort of go, is he taking the piss? Yeah. Or is the, is the legitimate point here that, you know, a year into this and over a month into the vaccination effort, we have now managed to update a website once a day. Of course, I then went on to the website and it had been... I think it was four days behind. Yeah, listen, you, you, something like this, you're going to go for a soft opening, aren't you? You're not going to go oh, straight. Oh, like, yeah, you I mean, you want, a, you want a soft rollout so that you don't embarrass yourself. Uh, it's currently updated until the 6th, so maybe it's now updating daily, but with a uh, you know four-day lag. Because, you know, let's be reasonable. It takes four days, Michael, to put together information from the various vaccination teams. That's not something that, considering we're spending, you know, the guts of uh you know hundreds upon hundreds of millions on this a month that's clearly not something we could pay someone to fucking do on the day no one of my favorite numbers on this was uh, as you know not gps pharmacists uh dentists and others i think dentists have been brought out certainly pharmacists obviously and gps are going to do this and they're getting paid x amount for every time they they for taking part in the process and then for every for every vaccine they give out and there was a picture of this youth, Gary, a, a mere strapling youth, who was a volunteer vaccinator in Israel. I think he's 18. And he's given 18,000 vaccines or something so far. Anyway, the report said that if he had been in Ireland and he'd been on either the pharmacy or the doctor's rates, one or the other, he would now be to the good for 450,000 quid. He, however, has, as I said, done it for nothing because he's, he's a volunteer. Still, I particularly enjoyed this because Reed was out recently saying this was a race to save lives, Michael. Oh, yeah. A race to save lives. No one seems to really care that it's not going well. Like, this is sort of, like, it, it's ticking along. The numbers are going up. We're doing, you know, we're doing enough. We're doing 6,000 a week or so. And you sort of go, well, like, you, you don't want to rush these things. But it's not 6,000 a week, Gary. So it's five to six thousand a day, I think, because like I mean the the UK they're doing like six hundred thousand a day, so it must be it must be a daily number they're looking at there. It's still one tenth of of the 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 UK numbers even on a daily basis. As for a race, the only race I can imagine, I don't know if they still do these things, and I don't know if schools still have sports days or community games and things like that, but. There used to be a thing that on, on these fun, one of the fun events used to be a thing called slow bicycle race, where the the idea was to to advance your bicycle towards the end as slowly as you could possibly do so without falling over, because obviously you that balance between forward momentum and inertia. And if you become inert on a bicycle, you do tend to fall over. And I think we are now seeing the Irish government's version of a slow bicycle race. So we can call it a race. It's not a it's not a hundred meter sprint with Usain Bolt. One one thing I did very much enjoy about the government's uh, website. Now that we're getting daily vaccination uh, numbers, there's no historical log data on that, Michael. 
There's no historical data on vaccinations at all. So if you don't note yourself every day what the vaccination number was, you've no way of knowing what the change was between one day and the next, or between one week and the next. So it's not graphed. It's not graphed, it's not collated, it's just a number that just updates. Which, and you might say, is that a big deal? But the thing there is, normally something like that would be done to make it more difficult for you to be able to uh, figure out exactly how things are going. Because if it's all there and there's historical data, you can kind of tell at a glance. Now, the HSE, given it took uh, five to six weeks to update this number on a daily basis, may simply have not thought about that. Or may have simply thought that if they had to graph something, that just couldn't happen in a day. It may also be that if you had a graph, the graph would actually show that after an, after the first couple of weeks, the numbers actually went down rather than up. And the thing is about this guy, you would expect that the numbers would go up, not just weekly, but almost daily. If you look at, say, the graph for the north of Ireland during the UK generally, and you imagine your, your classical XY axis, and it starts at the zero, zero point, the graph pretty well describes a 45 degree angle. That's the line. It's going up uh, constantly, consistently at a 45 degree angle. And that's what, I mean, obviously, if you could get it, it would be better, but that's pretty good progress. I don't think that's what we're looking at here. No, and I mean, considering that there is apparently a four day waiting time before it goes up, I mean, surely that would give you time to make a graph and, you know, get that in there. But uh, no, instead, we've got a, well, it won't be done by May. And, um,. Maybe April. Maybe April. We'll see what happens then. And then maybe May. I'm curious about a couple of scenarios here. We know the Russians are in the business of selling vaccines. This has been happening. We know the Hungarians bought vaccines. Oh, by the way, just we're talking about buying vaccines. Two things. One, the Maltese have bought 800,000 more Pfizer vaccines. And, And I'm remembering the comments that the Minister for Health, Steve Donnelly, made to the doll about people talking nonsense about going out by ourselves into this incredibly difficult and competitive market to try and source vaccines. We're living in cloud cuckoo land. Well, you know, you have to say, if only, Gary, if only we had the kind of economic and political clout that Malta has. I mean, Michael, don't be crazy. Malta is a powerhouse. Malta is central to the central to the Mediterranean. It controls all that traffic coming in from the Atlantic, going down to the going down to the Suez Canal. Maltese pirates are there sacking all those treasure ships. I mean, they just chock a block with the old dosh there. The Maltese. I mean, it's not like our economy is thirty, thirty-five times the size of Malta's. Roughly. <laughs> Anyway, do you remember we were talking before about the fact that the Germans, in a in a in an act what that struck some people, as being not quite an act of solidarity with the EU, had actually got another thirty million Pfizer vaccines for themselves. And this now this was this has been it's come up on social media. We talked about this a month ago, but well, no, maybe not a month ago, maybe or three weeks ago. And but this is going back to that. And I was reading the report again because it, it had the, the the report of the press conference when. Uh, somebody was asked about this. Well, did they feel that Germany was breaking the compact and should should they be giving a jolly good talking to? Because yeah, let's face it, they're not going to be disciplined in any kind of serious way. Jolly good talking to, maybe. And the response is, oh, I, I don't understand, basically. Why people? We're at the beginning of this process now about getting this vaccine out and rolling it out and doing this good work. And 
people getting obsessed with what the did someone dot the i's and cross the t's on some aspect of the agreement really i don't understand why you people are interested in this <laughs> really you don't understand well there you go but anyway uh the russians as i say are, are in the business of I'm, I, I'm curious to wonder what the situation is here regarding private vaccines. Like, if somebody wanted to go to Moscow and say, any chance, listen, I'll buy 200,000 from you. Like, we're all, everybody I talk to is assuming, oh, well, no, you just can't do that. But if you think, Gary, drugs are imported not by the government. They're imported by, with permissions and stuff, but by private companies. Now, it would have to, ha it would have to be licensed for, for use within the by the ema for use in ireland or by i think ireland theoretically could license its own use but they wouldn't do that but we've seen the report has it they published their data it's in the uh, peer reviewed in the lancet very respectable 91 percent efficacy everybody seems to be very happy with sputnik i wonder what would stop someone just as i say opening up some private clinics it's not an expensive vaccine it's not a difficult one and I'm sure that you could make an absolute killing. I mean, people would pay serious dollars. The other thing is somebody pointed out, going on the basis of how slowly it's going here, the Brits are going to have excess vaccines. That's no, There's no doubt about that. And they're going to have them sooner rather than later. They had announced that previously they believed it was going to be May before they hit the target of vaccinating everybody over the age of 50. However, 50 is the age because kind of the draw the line at 50 because if you eliminate... If you can if you can vaccinate everybody over the average 50 you reduce deaths by 99% because age is such a strong factor in lethality with this virus over 50 is vaccinated you reduce lethality the death rate goes down 99% gone at that now Boris recently said that they think that they could get this done by April April Gary and they're saying that there's a very real chance that this that could mean that, for example you would be able to go to the north to a, and go into a pharmacy and just pay for it buy it and presumably not at exorbitant prices because it'd be the UK within their NHS system what what would the situation be there I wonder would that cause ructions Martin said that wouldn't be allowed that it wouldn't be allowed to privately import the vaccine however what I do wonder here, and I think you may have a question here, is did he actually put anything in legislation to stop that? And if you did, if you were able to import it, what would they do? Mm. And also, if there's an agreement, I, 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 I absolutely don't know. So may, we know that health is a, is, a, is a particular competence, but we also know that the EU is a free trade. If, if you can import this, if you can import this and buy it, if you could buy this initially, say, right? If this is something you can buy in Italy, or you can buy in Germany, well, I don't know that they can stop you bringing it in here, because it's a it's a free it's a free, it's it's an absolutely open market for the free movement of goods and services. Well, Michael, here's here's a counterpoint to that. That may be the legal situation under European law, but I, well, I'm absolutely sure there are cutouts that are there that they'll be able to make use of. But even if it was the case, and legally under European law, there could be no restriction on this. There will be restrictions put on this, and absolutely no response from Europe will happen. I'm sure. I'm sure that you're you're right that that will be the response. But what, what I'm saying, what I'm imagining here is, imagine the scene. Okay, it's it, guy goes and says, "Okay, I have bought two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand vaccines. I have an agreement with the Russians to buy these at, let's say, he's paying 
$10 a pop, right? Now, Pfizer, I think its top price was around $25. So, and this is a less, this is a much less expensive, we'll say $10. I have no idea, maybe it's more. And I'm going to sell them for 50, 50 quid. But the government won't let me. The government won't let me buy these and have these used in the Blacklock Clinic or the Beacon or the Hermitage or in your, your local GPs. In others, administered everything above board, everything done by... I just wonder, what would the, the reaction of Joe Public be to be told, this guy wants to give you an opportunity to go and get vaccinated, but no, we've decided we're not going to let him do that. I just, I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to just, I'm just curious to see what the reaction to that would be. That would be interesting. There was actually, not related to the vaccination, but related to COVID-19, there was something I saw, uh, it was actually the, the end of January, but I forgot to talk about it then. There were a couple of um, professors who came out and said that they wanted to recommend that people take vitamin D to protect against COVID-19. Now, I have seen some of the research on this. It doesn't it doesn't seem incredibly well supported. Like there's some research saying that there was absolutely no difference. There were some small scale things that looked like it could make uh, a difference, but they were small enough that I'm not sure if you, you can take any sort of statistical validity from them. But and and there's some stuff where you know vitamin D was recommended and um, debt rates fell. But you can't tell if that's due to the vitamin D or if that's due to, to other factors because you're using real-world data. Yeah, I think there's some fairly good stuff on the vitamin D-zinc combo as being generally good for resistance to viral infections. I don't, not, I'm not saying specific to this virus necessarily, but, as a, a, but generally speaking, that a vitamin D and zinc combo, or put it this way, I, I, to be fair, what is there is strong evidence for is that vitamin D deficiency and zinc deficiency is bad news if you get uh, if you get if you get a viral infection whether taking lots and lots of big supplements or, but but and doctors for a long time have said just a general health issue that people who live in the Irish climate should just take vitamin D in the winter anyway because most of us are probably vitamin D, vitamin D deficient during the winter, particularly with the decline of not eating that much liver and red meat and eggs in, as much as we used to, which are good sources of vitamin D. But anyway, Tony Houlihan was, was asked about this and you know, asked, would they recommend this to people? And he said that um, the available evidence was circumstantial and without more proof, they would not recommend uh, such a move. My, this brings us back to when we were in the early days, Michael, when you and I were saying that people should wear masks and the advice not to wear them was wrong and also misunderstood risk in pretty bad ways. Yeah, the engineer versus the doctor. Yeah, and that, that to me seems to be another fine example of that. Because let's say vitamin D does nothing and the government comes out and says, this may help, we would recommend you take it. Because vitamin D will do you no harm at the very worst. What, what exactly has, has happened? You have spent... A minuscule amount of money on vitamin D. A surprising amount of people in Ireland, I would suspect, particularly now, have vitamin D deficiency. So it may help in a non-COVID way, but it hasn't hurt you. The costs are minuscule and there's no real impact if it turns out to be incorrect. Whereas if it turns out to be correct, the cost to implement it 
is minuscule and you save lives. Yeah. I don't, they don't seem to get that sort of thing, that it's not only the absolute proof of the action, it's the cost of the action itself. In that if you have something that is potential but not certain, but effectively is free, then if you can be sure there's no negative impacts, that may not be a bad thing to look towards. Everything, they seem to just demand in every situation before they're considering they have to have large scale, double blind, longitudinal studies before they, well, yes, the other, but in this case, like you say, the actual cost is, 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 the cost is so low. The upside is high. I don't know what the toxicity levels of, you would have to, to, to reach what kind of ingestion of vitamin D supplements you have to get to, to be toxic for it to be toxic. I don't know if it's possible. Maybe it's not possible, but I know there are some vitamins if you take them massively over this, it can, it can be bad for you. We're not talking about that. I mean, you'd have to be absolutely off your plate to do that. But again, like it's, it's like the mask. It's, it's, the, the cost is minimal, but the upside, the upshot is, is, is high. So do it. And sure, if it doesn't work, well, what did it cost you? I think I remember stats from before that 40 to 50% of people have vitamin D deficiencies anyway. And especially now, Gary, by the way, because we're, so many people are indoors all the time and they don't, and we don't have that much sunshine anyway for naturally, to naturally produced vitamin. So even more so, it should, a decent vitamin supplement right now is probably not a bad thing just generally for general health. But the, the interesting thing here is that they're talking about more evidence and they seem to want perfect evidence before they'll move on anything which one you're not going to get in the time scale you have available to you it just won't happen but two they will absolutely move on non-perfect evidence because mask wearing michael when we were talking about mask wearing in the early days and we went through the studies and we basically said it looks like it works and if you look at the countries that uh make heavy use of it which were predominantly asian countries Yes. It looks like it has some impact, but that may be due to, to other factors. But on the face of it, it looks like it works. But there is no, like, gold standard, absolutely contained study that suggests masks work perfectly or even terribly well. And there are studies that suggest they don't. And we, we talked about, we referred to those studies, and what we found was... That there was reasonable studies which indicated, and I think this was the mistake in communication that a lot of people made, the mass anyway, was, was not that it would uh, necessarily stop infection, but rather it, could, it, it, it helped with people who had the infection and it, it reduced their capacity to transmit it more than anything else. And that was that is useful. That was a useful thing to do. I think, was it you said you were talking to somebody about this and they said, well, masks might be useful in their response, but well, well, why wouldn't they be? And there was an element of that about it. Yeah, there, were, there weren't any gold plates. And there were, there were, it was Japan, I think there were a couple of studies in Japan which suggested there was, the evidence wasn't brilliant. But the, the study they did, the Yale study, I, I was the one I found most convincing. And they had looked at a lot of meta-studies. They did a meta-analysis about a lot of the studies. And they, looked and they said, you know what? Okay, it's nowhere near 100% or 90% protection or cutting down on transmission. But there will, it's possible that there could be anywhere between a 10% to a 40% or 50% reduction. And that's worth having. And also the per unit cost is very low. If it turns out that it doesn't do much, it only does a little bit, it still hasn't really cost you anything, bar some social discomfort in the most part. Oh, but it has, Gary, because the government has succeeded in taking your face away. 
and turning you into a drone and making you therefore more compliant and visible and basically getting us ready for animal farm it may it may be because i grew up reading like william gibson and cyberpunk stuff but i quite like the aesthetic of them yeah as we said before it's been really weird going from the people who were talking about masks when the public health advice was not only that they didn't work but that they could kill you to actually no you should absolutely be wearing masks to this evangelical anyone who says there's any issues with masks is not just mad they're bad and it's just a very like just on a dime we went from no no it in fact they may kill your entire family to uh, you're a monster if you don't wear one do you remember there was this belief that if people were wearing masks they would become so relaxed and so, uh, so blasé about it that they'd end up going around infecting people all over the place because of the terrible sense of security masks would give them i have to say the general opinion of the of and i i don't maybe have the highest opinion myself of the demos of the great unwashed on which we are a part but they have a very low opinion of people in their belief of like it's the same logic that goes behind the fact that they absolutely will not use antigen testing for rapid testing because again oh it'll be because Oh, people will get false confidence from this and they'll use it too much and they'll go off and they'll kill their granny. Killing grannies is a big thing. While Gary, and this is unfortunately not funny, we are killing those people all over again. In the middle of all of this talk, after having the disaster first time round of the, the, nursing, uh, the nursing homes, exactly the same thing is happening in this wave. People are not dying in the hospitals. They're not dying in the ICUs the same way. People are dying in the care homes and the nursing homes, which we were supposed to have identified as being the places where we would protect the vulnerable. Remember cocooning and all that? Well, the cocoons have apparently unraveled, but there you go. Yeah, but yeah it, 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 it's got to the stage now. I mean, the idea of, you, you, <laughs> and maybe there's a reason for it and I don't know, but now you still, you look at jockeys. I've said this before, you see jockeys at the backs of horses riding outdoors at 40 miles an hour in the sleet and rain <laughs> and they're wearing masks and i would love somebody to actually do the mathematics for me and work out the likelihood or the possibility of contracting the virus while sitting on a horse going at 40 miles an hour i mean speaking about about testing there and why you know we can't give people testing because it'd be all over the place i remember reading it was um the hse put it up the hse have a service called the national health library and knowledge service and they had put up um, what they thought the false positive rate, sorry, the false negative rate was on PCR testing. Now, for those who don't know, the false negative rate is if you take a test for a disease and you have it, a false positive is if a, or a false negative is if it comes back and say uh, says you don't have it. What they said was um, that a systematic review of the accuracy of the tests reported false negative rates of between 2 and 29%. <laughs> yeah. This is the PCR test. This is the PCR test. Which, by the way, is one of the major problems with uh, some of the zero COVID approaches. Because if you've got, let's say, a 30% false negative rate, it's going to be very hard to uh, deal with that. I had a conversation. I did an interview with a guy called Paul, Dr. Paul Cullen. He's a professor in Germany, Irish man but working in germany and he runs a couple of labs in germany 
testing all sorts of things and everything. And he was of the opinion that the PCR test is actually remarkably accurate, but there is a, that to the extent that there's a problem with it, it's a user problem rather than a than a than a test problem. That, but you have users, so that's the nature of the beast. But speaking of um, speaking of things that are just taking way too long to do, the uh, children's hospital, Michael. Well, uh, all I can say is thank God for the pandemic. Because at least we'll have a we'll have a good excuse. Um, when are we pushed back to now? Uh, it looks like twenty twenty four. Twenty twenty four. Now let's see. When did we begin? When did we actually sort of say, okay, we're pulling the trigger? Now I'm not saying when they started digging, but when did they actually give the go ahead on the plan? So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you a quote, Michael. I'm, I'll let you guess who who said it. He said that uh, nothing short of an asteroid hitting the planet, will stop this hospital from being built by 2020. You see, I'm, I'm torn. I'm torn. I'm torn between Leo and Simon. I'm going to go for Leo. Absolutely. It was Leo. This was in 2016. See, Gary, I remember the conversations we had about this that, we, that you had with, with, uh, on the basis of conversations you had with people who were experts in this area. And now 2016 is now five years ago. And they're saying that one of the problems with the late execution and delayed execution is, is that you start to get to a point where what you're building is no longer actually the current, te- the current tech. You still end up starting to have to change and crowbar stuff in and retrofit. And that starts to contribute then in a way that hadn't been predicted at the time to add both cost and time to the project. So in a fully, in the, the longer this, the later this thing gets, the more likely that that will contribute to it getting later again. Yeah, so I talked to Jimmy Sheehan in, I think, 2019. It was uh, actually maybe 2018. It was at least two years ago. And he just tore this thing apart. Hospital apparently should never take even two years to build because you design around the equipment and if you wait too long, your equipment is out of date and you have to redesign the entire thing. And we're on, we're on what now, Michael? Oh, he also actually in it said it would cost over 2 billion euros. I think he said there was no way it was coming in under less than 2.1. And I remember talking to people, politicians afterwards, and I think at the time it was still at like 1.2 or 1.4. And they're like, there's, there's no fucking way it's going over 2 billion. That is lunacy. And... Uh, now that doesn't look like lunacy. Now that looks like pretty spot on the money, actually. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's, it's a great little country, isn't it? So, 2024. So, uh, okay, Gary, pin your collar. I know you have a, a box there underneath the, the table full of bitcoins. How many of your bitcoins would you put on this being done by 2024? As an open and seeing patience? Yes. I mean, Michael, it has to open at some point. <laughs> Like, it physically has to open <laughs> But does it, it? Does it really? I mean, they keep building it, so presumably that has to finish. Like, you can't, you can't, like, fractally build a hospital. Maybe you come to a point where you have a new Minister for Health who takes a completely different view and says, do you know what? We're just indulging these sick children. In the old days, we didn't used to have sick children at all. They were just told to just walk it off, run around the block, have a drink of water, you'll be grand. 
and it would only just coddling it's just cod modern coddling of children building hospitals like this for them oh jesus michael do you remember when the um when the department of finance official ended up serving on the board of the um oh that was my absolute favorite that was my absolute brilliant yeah this official a very high ranking official in the department of finance ended up working on the board overseeing the children. He was a secretary of the department. Yeah, it was was the secretary of the department of finance, of which there were apparently two, which is part of the problem. And then finance was saying that they hadn't been informed of the cost overruns. And when people pointed out that the the secretary of the department was on the board, they said he was there in a personal capacity. (laughs) So so the secretary of the department of finance was on this massive project what what has he done in his life though? What what else does he do? Well, you know, some people do ornithology, some people do watercolour, some people collect stamps. This man obviously his what he likes to do to relax in his uh, rare, I'm sure, time off is to sit on the boards of large government infrastructure projects and just and obviously, you know, I mean he's not going to the last thing you're going to do is go back into the office and be that, you know, the boring guy who doesn't talk about anything except his children or his new car or his hobby. Oh, I did. I went painting. He doesn't want to be that guy. He's not going to come back and say to Pascal, Pascal, you never realize there so far the overrun is 700 million. And I don't think it could. I think it could. He, he's not. He doesn't want to be that guy. He's there in a brain. <laughs> He's there in a private capacity. I, I loved when they said it because it, it was as if they thought there would be no follow-on questions. And you know, Michael, like a doctor who tells a crippled man he's never going to walk again, several years later, looking back, I have to commend them on their spot-on judgment. There were no follow-on questions. There was just... There were none. There were none. In, in, in another country, that would have been embroidered on the front pages of the newspapers. I, I loved it, though, because you sort of go, well, there's a point for the Secretary of the Department of Finance to be on the board to, to look at the, the costs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's not a really point. a point for him to be there in a personal capacity, given that he doesn't seem to you know, do anything else. Yeah, we don't know what he was doing in the committee. He may have been a great help doing sums and things. But in that particular, as regards reporting back to the Department of Finance, not much help. Even then, you would think, even if you were just there in a personal capacity, and this project is becoming rapidly one of the most expensive buildings ever built by man in the entire course of its existence. Yeah, yeah. And I remember going back and checking, like, the projected building costs for the hanging gardens of Babylon and this thing was coming out ahead. <laughs> you would think, even if you were just there in a personal capacity, you might walk up to the minister and be like, you know what, you should you should probably ask how that's going. Like you should probably send a letter. Just a heads up. I loved it. It was fantastic. Because no one believed it, but no one asked anything about it. We're like, okay, well moving on. Uh, but uh, listen, we, there's no point. We could go back over that and plough that field so many times. Cause there was so many good stuff. I mean, from the you know from the street access to the parking issues to the the helicopter pad. Oh, we can't take the rescue helicopters. That's it. Can't take the rescue. It can only take the smaller helicopters. And even then, it's got a building in front of it, and it's got it's got high power power. It's high tensile power lines behind it. 
so that if there was a strong wind, either they don't land or else they go straight into the power lines. So it's oh, the whole thing is just brilliant. I I love that that the power line thing was just oh, it was a perfect finisher because that came out quite late. <laughs> it was just a sort of well. We may kill some children in tragic helicopter accidents. You kind of got the feeling that somebody halfway through, or no, halfway through, toward, at the end of the whole thing, went, I'm sure there's something. You know, like you're, you know, when you see those scenes where people are doing out, you know, the tables at, a, at some kind of an event or a wedding or something, and they're putting all the, the name cards. They're looking perfect. That's, there's, then, oh, there's somebody missing. Oh shit, the bride. Yeah, yeah, we better put her in. It's a bit like that. Somebody, I'm sure there's something missing off this. What could be? And somebody said, where's the helicopter going? The helicopter! Yeah, right! Because we, we built it in a place incredibly prone to congestion. And so that might be necessary sometimes to save the lives of children. And oh, oh yeah. Oh god. Oh. What I, I mean, there, there were many magical moments with this building and in that way I hope it doesn't end because I just want this feeling to continue forever. I wonder is that still open? I mean that Greenfield site down in Blanchardstown has anybody built on that but yet? You see, Michael, yes there was a, a Greenfield site down there and yes I think Jimmy Sheehan may have offered something and may have made certain offers of land or may have offered to come on and as the only person in Ireland who'd built most, multiple hospitals in time and under budget to help build the project, I think, for free. Um, but what I remember hearing at the time, Michael, was that the uh, the medical profession didn't like the idea of having to go outside the city. And so it was made clear that they would prefer a, a city centre location, not one built on a motorway in Blanchardstown. Which is very interesting, and actually I just remember it there. If you go back to the earliest discussion documents where they're going through which site is most um, would have been a, the best fit, yeah. Lee of Radker wrote to them to ask them to uh, reconsider the Blanchardstown site because it's in his constituency. But by the time he became Theshock, it was already a fucking mess. It's funny, Bertie Hearn basically said, he didn't quite say it. Bertie, as we know, because it was strangely in his constituency, advocated the site around the matter, I believe, wasn't it? And everybody poo-pooed and laughed at him. Ah, Bertie's just trying to get in his constituency. Well, he was being interviewed a little while ago, and he basically said, y'all laughed at me then, you're not laughing now. Anyway, in other news, Gary, uh, medical news. Yes, so the... Um the Irish Congress of GPs have had a little bit of trouble with their transgender health guidelines. Yes. I know people have been writing to them about them. I wrote to them uh, a while ago. And shortly after I wrote to them, um, they removed the guidelines. Uh, they didn't respond to any of my things, although I did have some hilarious back and forths with their press office, which mostly consisted of me going, I'm going to say the following thing. Them going, no, you can't say that. And me going, well, why not? Right. And uh, then sort of a stuttering noise for a while, like a lawnmower trying to restart. Yeah, I, my impression from talking to you when this was starting up was the initial response wasn't so much stuttering as, oh, I, I'm too busy to talk to you and oh, go away. Yes. But that cha that tone changed when the questions became explicit. You said they'd been having trouble. Yeah, they'd been having trouble from troublemakers, let's face it. Muckrakers, Gary. Muckrakers like you, who give journalism a bad name. I know. So they had made certain claims about um, the reversibility of certain treatments, which 
don't look to be reversible. And um, now they've gone back and edited those claims out, Michael, saying that the publication of a report that came out a month before they published their report uh, means they have to take those things into account. I think they didn't think anyone else would go back and Google when the other report was released. And oh, come on, Nuggery, listen, this was... This was anybody who was paying attention. Now, maybe they're going on the basis that nobody's paying attention anyway, full stop, to this issue. But they must have understood that if anybody was paying attention, this the issue about the reversibility and not reversibility was something which had rather cropped up during the the court, the, the Tavistock court case in the High Court in England. Yeah, it, it's popped up in several places. And I mean, the NHS had changed their views on it. What I think is interesting is that they've amended their documents now and they're still not responding to me and i've talked to a couple of other reporters who also reached out to them and they're saying that they're basically responding to everyone with just one-liners of um, right. you know we update things sometimes it's perfectly normal absolutely the thing there is that if the icgp is now admitting that the things it told gps were reversible are not actually reversible that seems like a pretty monumental fuck up. Well, you kind of you kind of assume this kind of, it's rather serious. You you would assume that a professional organisation would be very careful in its advice regarding a medical treatment that was not. I mean, we've talked before about the tendency of doctors in the context of COVID to demand these double blind trials with placebos, with longitudinal, with massive numbers, and all, before they would commit to anything. And yet in this case, that, the, on the face of it to the layman, that does not appear to be the case regarding the kinds of evidence that they were willing to take for the reversibility of these particular hormones. And that's odd, and particularly when you, got, when you look at, say, whose advice they were taking on this, who were they looking for for expertise, guidance, and for guidance? I mean, I, I, I'd be, you know, I, I will give my opinion on this. So the the document says it was written in um, in conjunction with Tenite, the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland. Um, it was written in conjunction with their health and education manager, who does not appear to have any medical qualification, and it was written with another doctor whose speciality is addiction. Uh, treatment and management right now some of the parts of the document were word for word taken from previous 10i publications so my assumption here is that 10i effectively wrote that document and the icgp may have had some level of input in it but i think it was relatively minute given that the author on it from the icgp side is not a specialist in this area so what i think they effectively did was let an advocacy group write clinical guidelines now parts of the document on the face of it that that was my assumption and the icgp won't respond to my questions uh because they basically just went dark when they realized what i was asking about particularly when i started saying things like medical liability that's to be to be honest leaving aside i mean the issue the central issue the controversy itself about the treatments and the thing that struck me as really odd was i mean irish doctors naturally enough, are very concerned about their insurance payments every year because Ireland is a litigious country. We are a litigious people and we have courts that pay out large sums of money to people who have been, who are found to have been 
damaged by negligence or poor care of in any sector. I know for a group of people that are as, as aware as they are of the whole issue regarding correct care and management and negligence and all those issues and the exposure that they might potentially be putting themselves to, I was, I, 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 I'm very surprised that they seem to be so on the face of it, the relaxed about this. I think, I think effectively what happened is Tenai is a very well integrated NGO. As, as advocacy groups go, they're actually seem to be shockingly effective at getting involved in other organizations, state organizations, and they were basically let go. I mean, the, the, the first version of that document explicitly told GPs to consult with Tenai in relation to patient patment, uh, treatment pathways and did not tell them to talk to medical authorities or, or experts in the field or really any organization that would have uh, would have anything to do with it. So I can't see that getting through an ICGP review. The only way I can see that document going out is if they basically didn't even look at it before they hit publish. Like, not to be, I don't know, I'm certainly not deli- trying to be deliberately picky here, but like, you're a GP, okay, you have that specialisation in itself, you have to do five years to become a GP these days. You're not a specialist in any other area of medicine. You're not an area and transgender uh, treat, transgender treatment pathways. That's a speciality in itself. But on the specific issue, they're not endocrinologists either. And surely it would be normal if you had if you had concerns if you were talking to a GP who had concerns about they wanted clarity on the short term, medium term effects. Because say if you're talking to a patient, Gary, right, and you're going to prescribe. A, a, a treatment for them, a course of treatments. Now, I don't even know if GPs do this in this situation, but maybe this is your, this is what your, your your patient is asking for a particular treatment. It would be normal for you to be able to advise them, well, if you take, say if you're taking an antidepressant, well, then you may have this physical consequence or that physical consequence. And you should avoid, I don't know, drinking alcohol during, when you're doing this. And you should you should be aware that if this happens, then that's a normal thing. But if this happens, you should be careful. You come back to me and we'll have a look at it again. If you give somebody, if you do, if a drug, and that's if the drug you understand. So if you're not an expert in this, you, surely you'd consult an endocrinologist rather than an advocacy group, no matter how well-informed or expert that particular advocacy group might happen to be. They are still an advocacy group. I, I found that weird. Yeah, I, 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 I think it was weird. Now, interestingly enough, I've sent the ICGP some more questions, Michael, which I imagine they will ignore or quietly put up a V3, possibly without noting it as a V3, because they got rid of any claims of reversibility and most of the Tenai stuff is, is stripped out. Right. One area they didn't change it in is what's called the Dutch Protocol. Now, the Dutch Protocol originally argued that children should begin puberty blockers at at age 12, cross-sex hormones at 16, and then surgery at 18. Now, once that got adopted more widely, the 12 kind of went down a bit. Um, And that's basically the Dutch protocol in, in a nutshell. That's what it says you should do. And the document says that is best practice internationally. Now... Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the phrase that they use when talking about it comes directly from, I think, a 2017 Tenai document. 
So it is still a word-for-world uh, Tenai phrase. But the interesting thing is, Michael, the document that they um, that they reference that claim to doesn't discuss the Dutch protocol at all. In fact, it looks like when they went from V1 to V2, they broke their referencing and didn't bother to fix it. So I went back to the original document on the assumption that that is the correct uh, reference. The original document, when it's talking about the Dutch protocol, reference a, a comment piece on another study. So not even the study itself. But the comment piece does say that the study it's referring to should help to silence critics, is the phrasing it uses. But it doesn't say that the Dutch protocol is the best international practice. So I went back and I read the study that the comment piece is referring to, which wasn't referred to directly, or wasn't referenced directly in, in the ICGP text. And that doesn't say the Dutch protocol is best practice internationally. Mm-hmm. So it would seem to me that the ICGP is telling GPs that you should consider this to be the gold standard, and nowhere in the document they've put together have they managed to actually reference anything that says that. Every reference they've given doesn't actually say it which would seem like a major thing considering that the dutch protocol again says that children should start puberty blockers at 12 and cross sex hormones at 16 one thing i did find was very interesting the earliest study i could find about the dutch protocol which i think doesn't even call it the dutch protocol but is clearly talking about it is a 2006 study from amsterdam gender clinic now what i found interesting about that michael was when you go to the acknowledgement section one of the acknowledgements, in fact, the only acknowledgement in the document, is Ferring Pharmaceuticals. And they say that Ferring Pharmaceuticals financially supported studies on the treatment of adolescents with gender identity disorders. Now, that made me go and look at what Ferring uh, Pharmaceuticals actually does, Michael. So Ferring Pharmaceuticals are a privately owned Swiss biopharmaceutical uh, company, and they produce a drug called uh, tripturalin, which, Michael, this may shock you, is widely used as a puberty blocker. No, I am not for a minute suggesting, because I, I, nor do I believe that there would be any uh, sort, of, sort of quid pro quo or causal, causal connection between the two factors. But I would have thought that in a normal situation, in an academic report, that that kind of thing would normally be avoided. For a, the, the appearances, at the very least, that, that, the, the appearances of independence? That depends, Michael. Like, if you were doing something on vaping, and let's say a vaping company or a tobacco company got help you paid for it, that would obviously be the end of your career, and evil. But in this instance, it seems to be perfectly fine. Because a pharmaceutical company, Michael, would never lie to you. No, no, we know that. Particularly not privately owned Swiss biopharmaceutical companies. <laughs> oh, let's leave the Swiss alone, I'm sure. They're lo- perfectly lovely people, and all that lovely art. But anyway, I just... I. I It'll be interesting to see if they go for a V3, or if they just quietly correct it, or if they just decide to ignore it. Now, as I said, they are ignoring absolutely everything I put in, which is why I'm now sending everything to their press office, to the authors of the study, and the Quality and Safety and Practice Committee at the same time, just so that if something does fuck up here, Michael, I can go back and say, no, no, I told you. I directly told you. But um, if they don't fix it, and they leave that in. That's actually not a great outcome either, because you would think they'd at least fix the referencing. I would have thought so. I just, I, I just kind of feel that you know, 
if regardless of how annoying you find the reporter bringing it to you, if someone goes, by the way, that, that claim you made is not actually supported and uh, all of the things you claim supported don't actually, you'd think there would just be a little bit of, oh, we should probably fix that. Yeah, we, and if we have if we have good supporting evidence, well, then we'll, we'll, we'll reference that. It will be very funny if they have to get rid of, like, do a V3 purely because they didn't read everything Tenai wrote. And considering it is a word-for-word copy of a previous Tenai publication, I'm going to assume it was Tenai's work. Well, it'll be interesting to see what... I imagine we'll, we'll get the answer to this in the next couple of weeks. It'll either, it will either stay or it'll, it'll go under uh, another transformation. It actually it was... It was um, the fact that they had changed it became front page news on the the Sunday edition of the Times. Yeah, they, they covered it. Now, they didn't mention that Crypt had, had um, done anything on it or whatever. And it's possible, that I suppose, that they had also reached out to the ICGP at the same time we did. And had just uh, gotten nowhere. But, uh, yeah, we weren't mentioned anyway. But they did put it on their front page. And it has pissed some people off royally. Sure. Listen, the work itself is the, its own reward. The interesting thing there is, like they they put that document out. It looked, I I would guess, basically without oversight. It it certainly looks like it was published without oversight. You don't make those kind of changes within two weeks of publication if you appropriately oversue the document. Oh, it, I don't know what is it. What I, I neither of us really know what the oversight is here. I mean, maybe these people just read. Maybe it was read, read carefully, but they just assumed in good faith that if you have a document which is being produced by these people, that if they make a, a bold statement of fact that it's supported. I mean, if I was if I was given a PhD thesis by somebody that I knew who was a conscientious historian, say, and I and they said they made several bold statements of facts, I would just assume they were true, Gary, because you don't do that. You don't make a bold statement of fact. If unless you know that on the twelfth of September seventeen twelve, John Casey was in Hunter's pub and was seen drinking a bowl of punch, that I, I assume this documentary has to be. Why else would you put it there? Yes, but Michael, that's perfectly fine in the average course of events. But the ICGP is a professional body for GPs. But the whole thing seems to me to be odd, Gary. I mean, everything about this seems to me to I mean, Oftentimes you look into some things like this and you find these claims and they'll be repeated nationally. They'll be in health literature. They'll be in everything. And then you sort of, you go through the references and you go layer by layer and you eventually come back to some NGO's publication. And it's just, they've managed to get that claim into other things and then the reference is no longer to the NGO. It's to the ICGP. The ICGP says these things are reversible. Yeah, say so you do this and you say, oh, well, actually, it, this is also, st- this is also, this claim is also substanti- substantiated, we'd say, but it appears in guidance given by the HSE in a report, or, for example, or something. And then you say, well, we have two obviously independent and reputable sources, so, well, it must be true. Yeah, and then, you know, the ICGP published something else which discusses this, so, of course, it takes material from previous ICGP materials. And then that report, and then that gets reported, cited in another scholarly journal, and therefore now suddenly you've got scholarly journal articles, and then away, listen, I know, and we all know, I mean, it, in a note, it, 
the number of stories that are current myths that go back to over the years i've found to bits of research you go back to a single news story which was completely wrong back in 1956 but because it's easier to to look up the old archives journalists will just find oh right and then they'll re regurgitate that and then some other journalist copies that story and then somebody in france sees that on the on on, on the wire and suddenly it's in 50 different papers and 50 at different times around the world but when you actually go back and back and back and back you find there's never the actual source is the same source and the same source the original source was just wrong but it creates this sense of a volume uh, of of a, of what sources a volume of of people which gives it a it gives a sense of of solidity to it a claim which actually lacks any real solidity to it. You can see it with journalism. One place will put up a story and another place will effectively copy that story. They'll rewrite it so you don't know that they um, that they copied it. And they might ask someone that they know who's kind of related to it for a quote and then they've got a different source quote. But maybe that person doesn't really know what's happening. And that happens repeatedly. And then people start referencing each other's work and you very quickly end up with this sense that this is not only being said, but that this is consensus. Anyway, listen, we shall wait and see for the next instalment. But I suppose, uh, and look at the time, we've hit the arrow, we might, we might as well... we back on Friday. I think we will talk about Russia's uh, humiliation of the EU, Michael, and the varying views to it uh, between the Berlamont and uh, Russia, who seem to be taking a uh, very different view of it than the EU. <laughs> but until then, mind yourselves. All the best. <laughs>